It's the 23rd of January, 2016, and this is episode 279. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, exciting, and empowering, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. On today's show, senior correspondent Matthew Zipkin digs into Bitcoin Unlimited, one of the alternative efforts that's emerged to address the Bitcoin scalability problem by giving individual Bitcoin nodes an important voice in a conversation previously restricted to miners and developers. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. This is Matthew Zipkin. And today on the show, we're joined by Andrew Stone from Bitcoin Unlimited. How's it going today, Andrew? Hi. Cool. So what have you guys made here? What is Bitcoin Unlimited? Well, it's basically a client that is a uh, small patch set on top of the Bitcoin core. And the intention is to allow the block size to be decided by the network, not by a centralized decision making organization. Okay. so what you've got is a you're working on a scalability solution for Bitcoin. Uh, yes, although um, I'm sure a lot of developers would argue that just increasing the block size is not really scalability solution. So how does Bitcoin Unlimited affect the block size? Is it agnostic or does it itself imply a hard fork or, you know, in the code, what have you actually changed from core? Right. So there's it's actually interesting uh, how much uh, misunderstanding there is in what Bitcoin Unlimited actually does. So let me try and explain, you know, for once and for all. <laughs> First of all, um, in protocol design, there's like this philosophy to be lenient with what you accept and very uh, pedantic or careful with what you send. And the idea is that, you know, if multiple vendors or, you know, implementations are trying to adhere to a protocol, people will make mistakes. And that, I think that's an excellent philosophy. And um, this is sort of what Bitcoin Unlimited believes is that you can be very specific as to the blocks that you generate, but you should be lenient in the blocks that you accept. Just right now, um, you know, we have yet another block size proposal by BitPay, right, to create an average. So, I mean, there's one thing that all of these block limit proposals have in common, and that is that they're all this centralized choice, and if everyone just followed them, it would be fine. The reality is we have a decentralized network and everybody is not going to follow a single maximum block size increase algorithm. Got it. So you're kind of saying that a hard limit of one megabyte is just as inconvenient as 248 or BIP 101, which increases every... Yes. And that and that no, we're never going to come to a decision because there are actually advantages to one versus another, depending on what type of hardware you're running, whether you're running a, you know, a... Um, uh, hardware wallet, all sorts of, you know, reasons. So what Bitcoin Unlimited does is it removes the block size limit and replaces it with what we call an excessive block size. And that is a block which is really perhaps bigger than you would really want to accept in your personal node. And if a block comes in that's larger than the excessive size, then the, the fork that that block creates will not instantly become the active chain on your node. And what that means is that your node won't relay that block and also it won't update your GUI or you know if, or your command line um, commands to say, tell me what the Bitcoin balance is. And then only if the uh, Bitcoin Unlimited 
node sees that that block is being built upon, if miners are creating blocks on top of that block, does it then become, become the active chain? Or more specifically, become a candidate to be the active chain, right? And then the normal uh, largest proof of work chain is chosen. It's somewhat agnostic. It's like, I don't care if you give me a 10 megabyte block, just so long as the rest of the network builds on top of that. Exactly. Exactly. So in a sense, it uh, accepts any block size increase algorithm or even block decrease algorithm if the vast majority of the network feels that we need to go to 100 kilobyte blocks. So as a user running Bitcoin Unlimited, I've got two parameters that I control. It seems one is the excessive block size and the other is the block depth at which I will compromise on that block size. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so the excessive block size setting seems like it doesn't really, it's not that, it doesn't matter that much, right? What's more, what's most important is the block depth at which you will basically switch forks. No, uh, I think the excessive is very important because that's essentially the limit that says if it's greater than this, then apply this accept depth, right? So if my excessive limit is, is five megabytes, then any block up to five megabytes, I will process right away. I see. Okay. Okay. When the client ships, let's say, if I were to if I were to run this right now, what are the default settings for those two parameters? Um, I have the uh, excessive block limit at sixteen megabytes and the um, accept depth to be four. The intention behind that, you might think that the excessive limit is very high, but the intention behind that is the philosophy of Bitcoin Unlimited is to accept what the hash power majority of the network feels is an appropriate block size. So it's high because it's really only meant to, again, um, remove like back to the original idea of the, the maximum block size. It, so it's meant to limit spam. And if you um, did want to truly encourage a you know, lower network-wide block size, then you're expected to go into the client and change that value to what you want yourself. In general, how does the max block size actually limit spam? In, in any block size situation, what is preventing me as an attacker from sending out a million dust transactions with minimum fees? Yeah, I mean, no, that's an excellent question. And the knee-jerk thought is that block size does prohibit spam. And the reason why is because you can't, you know, add the transactions to the block. But the truth is that two terabytes of disk space costs like $100 now. So the problem is not committing those transactions and putting them to disk never to be read again. The real issue is RAM and transaction validation speed. So actually, as we saw several months ago, it's very, very effective just to uh, flood the network with transactions. That's an excellent spam technique, even though they'll never be part of the one megabyte block. So really, in fact, some people argue that having a low block size encourages spam for the sake of spam, I guess. And the reason why is because since those transactions will never be part of a block, their transaction fee will never you know, be consumed. Is getting into a block the point of the spam attack? You know, I mean, if the, you're already spending the the minimum relay fee just to get those transactions out there. So you haven't actually spent the fee until the transaction is committed to a block, right? Oh, right. So you simply throw it out there with the minimum fee and most of them never get spent, but you've consumed a tremendous number of network wide resources because that transaction is forwarded to all of the 6,000 clients running the Bitcoin network. 
So for free, what you've basically done is consumed 6,000 times you know, the size of your transaction in both memory and in uh, bandwidth, and then the transaction eventually gets dropped. Now, if we committed that transaction to a block, then we would be penalizing the spammers and the transaction would go to uh, you know, someone's hard drive, which would remove it from RAM, and uh, space on a hard drive is much cheaper. Right, so it almost seems like larger blocks actually make spam attacks more costly for the attacker. Yeah, there's no doubt they make them more costly. The question is, is someone generating spam for the purpose of getting these dust transactions into a block as a uh, way to store a lot of data in the blockchain? If that was truly the case, then you could see how having a large block size would encourage spam. If the purpose of spam is like a DDoS attack on the network, then not committing those to disk space would... Um, because they stay in RAM? Yeah, but well, because they never... Yeah, so eventually they'll just be dropped out of the network, right? So you have to ask, what is the purpose of the spam? I think that um, very few people are trying to commit their uh, personal images to you know, uh, the blockchain because it's just an extremely inefficient way to um, store and retrieve data. So is Bitcoin Unlimited a fork of Core or XT or where did you start? It's a fork of Core. There were obviously some questions about, I, I believe a lot of FUD about XT and I don't know, it just seemed like a lot of poison. So we chose to um, put it on top of Core and because it's basically not a fork, it's a patch set, which is slightly different. What that means is that we are going to periodically be rebasing on top of the latest core. Because, I mean, you know, they do excellent work, right? So we want to take advantage. Right. So you mean if core adds something like segregated witness or, or something, then the Bitcoin Unlimited patch set can just be reapplied every time core gets updated? Yes. Yeah, so by default, Bitcoin Unlimited will follow all of the changes in core unless there's an explicit, you know, voted proposal to um, remove one of those features. For example, the RBF functionality is currently, um, there's a proposal to remove it. Okay, and that's, you're talking about replaced by fee. Yes. Do you want to uh, talk about that really quick, what, what that is? Sure, it's the idea that your uh, zero confirmation, like if you send a transaction and you decide, oh, you should, you really want a higher fee or you want to send it to someone else entirely, you can reissue the transaction with a higher fee and miners will uh, choose your subsequent transaction. Whereas today, it's basically the first seen transaction is the one that is used. And the problem, you know, formal computer science people roll their eyes because this is simply a convention that exists uh, by the fact that the miners just enforce it, right? So it doesn't have the sort of guarantees that Bitcoin itself, like a, you know, a big a transaction with multiple confirmations, has. At the same time, um, you know, the entire financial system today works by uh, you know agreement, and also a transaction that has one confirmation is not guaranteed to be certain either. And two confirmations, any number of confirmations can actually be unwound in a theoretical sense, right? So in the Bitcoin Unlimited um, articles, we sort of indicate that we believe that a primary philosophy of Bitcoin is to enable payments between two individuals. And so we feel that zero confirmation transactions are important between two individuals, even though 
they are the least reliable in terms of, you know, double spend uh, form of transaction. Yet RBF would make them much less reliable. Basically, it makes that any Joe could double spend any uh, transaction he wanted to at any time. Right. And the trade-off being that in the honest case, you would be able to increase the fee on a transaction and rebroadcast it. Yes, exactly. So obviously, if um, the block size is limited and we enter a a system where people are actively competing for block space, transaction space, then a replace by fee seems almost necessary so that entities can, uh, you know, people can fight over uh, transaction space. Personally, I feel like the transaction space itself should, uh, if, if you do have to have a block size limit, that transaction space should, you know, uh, follow supply and demand, should expand. So let me ask you a few things about how Bitcoin Core is designed as far as multiple forks. So I was under the understanding that in the case of a hard fork, or even if like you're running, you know, version seven of the of the original client or something like that, Bitcoin still detects long invalid forks and alerts the user. Is that right? My experience in uh, running Bitcoin Unlimited on testnet was that Bitcoin Core would simply close the uh, connection and drop the node. So the reason why is because if a message comes in to Bitcoin Core that's larger than what it will accept, which is one megabyte, Bitcoin Core just assumes that the the node that is um, generating that message is uh, sort of an attacker. So it closes out and drops. And that's why basically um, on testnet, the XT fork and the uh, Bitcoin Core fork kind of coexist without really knowing about each other. Okay, interesting. So if we're in, let's say we're in a hard fork situation and I've been living under a rock and a large block fork starts moving, let's say 10 blocks ahead of where my node is, my node doesn't even know that there's other nodes out there that are 10 blocks ahead. It won't tell me like, hey, there's a fork out there. Yeah, unfortunately, if you're running Bitcoin Core today, what's going to end up happening is the Bitcoin Core network will just drop all of the XT nodes. And so you'll basically partition the network in terms of connectivity. So you won't know that that other chain even exists. Okay, I was I was misunderstanding about that. I thought that core can detect that, uh, or maybe it, it detects that a block version number starts coming in that's higher than your own block version number. Yeah, I, I think the difference is the theory and the practice, right? This anti-connection attack mechanism is more like a practical matter that was added that is in core. But all this is like a for a hard fork doesn't just suddenly happen. Like uh, if if BIP one hundred one takes over, it needs ninety five percent of the mining power. So there's going to be a big run up to that, and nodes will be able to see the new block version number coming down the pipe. I think it's seventy five percent, but um, that's true. And that is, though, a arbitrary uh, choice. And it's another one that everyone's arguing about. So I actually wonder if that's actually what's going to happen, given that, as I was saying, no one can agree on anything in this decentralized network. I think it's more likely that a bunch of miners might get together with a bunch of exchanges and boom, you're going to have a higher block size. Yeah, right. But it would still take 750 blocks for that threshold to meet. Well, um, personally, for BIP 101, yes. But for BitPay's uh, proposal, I don't think they have a... uh, I, I mean, I didn't look at the code closely. But what I'm trying to say is I believe that Bitcoin is defined by the hash power majority so long as the Bitcoin money function is not significantly altered. So I think that if... 51 or let's just say 60% of the miners and a couple of exchanges grouped together, then you're going to have a fork. 
without an announcement. Right. If a majority of the network switched to Bitcoin Unlimited, would there, would there potentially be an instant hard fork or is there any kind of threshold for that? Oh, no. The size of the block that is generated in Bitcoin Unlimited is separate from the size of the block that gets accepted. So you can, uh, and right now, by default, uh, Bitcoin Unlimited will only generate one megabyte blocks. So the idea is that you're signaling to the network that you will accept larger blocks if they come. But again, your Bitcoin Unlimited client is going to be conservative in what it generates. And the uh, idea is ultimately, when it's clear that a majority of nodes are running you know, large block tolerant clients that eventually someone will put their little toe over the edge of the pool there and generate, uh, you know, 1.1 megabyte block and see how it fares on the network. So do Bitcoin Unlimited nodes advertise their parameters? Well, that's a that's an excellent question, uh, because originally, no. And that was a sort of a weakness that was identified very quickly. And I originally thought, well, it doesn't matter because Bitcoin Unlimited nodes will ultimately accept a block of any size, right? So all you need to do is check to see whether it's a Bitcoin Unlimited node. However, um, it does seem like it's a lot nicer for the nodes to actually communicate what their excessive block size is. So we have a um, proposal out there, which I think has pretty broad support to add this kind of information to uh, actually the user agent string, which is maybe not the perfect place to put it, but it's a lot, uh, it's very easy and convenient. And actually, if I had to say anything to implementers of other protocols like the median block size or BIP 101, it would be that they really ought to add these fields into their own um, user agents as well, because I really see a heterogeneous network at this point. Right. Well, you could see uh, in the user agent if you're talking to an XT node, at least. Yes. And it would be possible to write a very large if statement that says, if you're an XT node, then do this. If you're a BitPay node, then, you know, your block size limit is this, right? But actually with the BitPay node, that's not exactly true because then you'd have to run the BitPay's, you know, median algorithm locally to figure out what the actual block size is. So it'd be really convenient. And the same thing with Bit101, right? You have to, after activation, in order to figure out what the actual Bit101 block size is, you'd have to, you know, run the Bit101 exponential increase algorithm locally. So it'd be just much simpler if each user agent specified what block size they would accept. Uh, so just back to like, how does Bitcoin Core, how does it handle forks? Like if it receives three potential blocks on top of the latest block, it holds each of those in memory. And then I guess the first one it gets is the official tip, but it waits to see which block gets built on top of. So, right. It's an interesting question. So what happens is when a new block comes in, it calls this, it basically adds the fork that was created to this list. And then there's an algorithm that iterates through that list and ultimately picks the uh, you know best chain, uh, the most difficult chain. And off the top of my head, I don't remember if it's always going to pick the first one or if it might switch. But I think that that's not that important because you're right that ultimately whoever wins the race to produce the next block on top of three siblings is going to be the one that, you know, wins. So what are the implications here? Let's let's say there's the majority of the network is running Bitcoin Unlimited. We're going to have a huge range. You're going to have if you just probably go through the subreddits, you can you can probably imagine that, you know, you're, you'd have a bell curve, let's say, where 25% of unlimited nodes say we need 500k blocks and, you know, another 25% say we need 
16 gigabytes and somewhere in the middle is around eight or so. And how does that actually affect the block size or how does a miner? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. A lot of people uh, just in a knee jerk fashion uh, say that that means that the network will not converge to a single blockchain. I disagree for a variety of reasons. Well, first of all, you have to remember that the Bitcoin Unlimited is not a limit, right? It's an excessive size, right? So basically what will end up happening is that as these two, uh, let's say a one megabyte, you know, block size limit and a two megabyte limit forks uh, start to vie against each other, one of them will gain a um, significant lead in the mining. And then that, you know, all the nodes will switch over to that fork. Right. Okay. Because Bitcoin Unlimited doesn't reject any forks. It's kind of just like, well, let's sort of see how this plays out. Right. Exactly. And also, um, if blocks were produced every 10 minutes, you know, exactly on a schedule, then you would have a problem because if, let's say you had 50% of the hash power on each fork, then the forks would proceed in lockstep. But the reality is that the randomness of finding a block is basically like the mathematical problem of a drunken walk, which is similar to the idea that, um, you know, if you're like playing poker and you play enough hands, one of the two players is gonna end up with all the money, right? This is sort of a mathematically proven fact. And so the same is gonna occur is that if you're racing between two forks with exactly the same hash power, someone will get lucky and they will end up being the winner. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here with a quick update from last week. Thanks to some help from a listener, our YouTube channel is back online and there doesn't appear to be any harm done. So I just wanted to give a really big thanks for the prompt help when we needed it. At mindamatter.org, I've been posting new songs for people with producers tokens, and I'm getting ready to release the second EP. Wanted to alert longtime listeners to a token swapping opportunity. If you've got an early token, which we gave out to listeners who signed up for the rewards program back in 2014, you can, for a limited time, swap it for a MTM producer access token. The normal price for one of these perpetual access tokens is 50 bucks, so if you're interested in early access to my work and have been around for a little while, here's a good opportunity to take advantage. MTM producer tokens can also be purchased, of course, with Bitcoin, LTB coin, BitCrystals, XCP, and SJCX. Thanks in advance, mindamatter.org if you want to see more details and get the relevant links. LTB logo tees and sweatshirts are in stock and available to ship immediately in all sizes. Visit letstalkbitcoin.com slash marketplace to support the Let's Talk Bitcoin show as we finish our third year and get yours today. magic word for today's episode is excess. That is E-X-C-E-S-S. Excess. You've got until the 30th of January to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. You said that the Bitcoin Unlimited default 
block generation size is still one megabyte, but but obviously that's configurable because that's the whole point. So is there an algorithm? Let's say I'm, a, I'm, I'm running a mining pool. Do I need to decide every 10 minutes how big I want the next block to be? Or does Unlimited have some kind of algorithm that maybe makes a recommendation? Or um, how do I as a miner decide what I'm going to do? Yeah, uh, so we originally envisioned this as more like putting your big toe over the line. And the line being the shelling point of one megabyte, right, which is where everyone sort of by default agrees. So I would imagine that miners aren't deciding on every block what their maximum should be. What I would imagine is that once the one megabyte shelling point is broken, that miners just set some reasonable value like that's as big as the other blocks that they've seen on the network, right? And then only when a miner is trying to produce a block bigger than has ever been seen on the network before, do they really need to watch, you know, the mining process carefully? Okay, cool. So it's like, you know, one morning uh, Slush is going to wake up and be like, yeah, today's the day, 1.1 megabytes, and he types that in and goes with that. Right. Generates a block, sees what happens, and if it gets orphaned, then, you know, he better go back down to uh, uh, one megabyte. However, and I know, you know, Orphaning a block is very expensive. And so, you know, this is not a random process. He would have woken up, uh, he would have done some statistics the day before and realized that, you know, 75% of the nodes should be accepting two megabyte blocks, right? And that's why he's willing to go up to 1.1. Okay, so what if I'm living in the in the sticks here and I have a bad internet connection and, and I've been saying forever that Bitcoin needs to drop the block size down to half a megabyte. I could be easily attacked or forked off the network, right? Yeah, so there's a philosophical problem that Bitcoin is never going to be able to resolve. And that is, when does the greater economic good of having more transactions exceed that person who is running on a Raspberry Pi or is running on a um, you know slow network, right? When should we force this person to become a um, SPV wallet as opposed to a Bitcoin node? B- beyond even answering the question, do you, you know, ask yourself, do you have the right to answer that question? Do you get to decide? I and I think everyone else and most other people in Bitcoin Unlimited anyway feel like, no, I mean, no one should have the right to make that decision. It should be essentially an emergent property of the network. So the answer is basically, and it goes to the work I was doing on um, the single transaction or empty blocks. The answer is that um, miners can essentially vote whether they want the blocks to be greater or lesser by producing empty blocks or blocks of a particular size, right? And if that size is lower than the average block in the network, then um, the average block size uh, will reduce. And, you know, it's not really, the problem is not really that a 10 megabyte block comes in, right? Because if that was the only block that was going to come in for 10 hours, then you're producing one megabyte per hour of actual data, right? So a slow internet connection would have 10 hours to download that that 10 megabyte block. The question is really, what is the transaction capacity of the Bitcoin network? That's truly what the question is. And through my work with uh, examining uh, empirically the Bitcoin network, sort of discovered that actually the, what people call SPV mining, it's when you just mine the headers of a block, it actually is a um, mechanism to sort of put the brakes on to the Bitcoin network and say, hey, you know, I have this much hash power, but the network is running too fast for me. So um, I'm going to mine a headers only block 
and slow the network down. Right. It, yeah, I, th- I saw that paper on your website and I thought it was really interesting. So what we're talking about here is I'm a miner and I receive a block from another miner and it's going to take me whatever it is, a minute or I don't know how long it takes, two minutes to validate that block. Yeah, well, I discovered that, you know, miners today are basically able to validate transactions at 17 seconds per megabyte. Someone sends you a four megabyte block, it's going to take you like about a minute. Okay, so in the current situation, during those 17 seconds, while let's say my machine over here on my left hand is validating that block, my machine on the right hand is already trying to work on the next block just headers only, just based on the hash of the last block. And because I don't know which transactions are no longer in the mempool, as in I don't know which transactions are in that block because I haven't validated it yet, I'm just going to go ahead and mine a block with no transactions, just a Coinbase, until my left hand says, okay, this block is ready to go and the mempool has been readjusted. So there's a period in there where I'm still trying to mine, but since I don't know what the state of the mempool is, I'm just mining an empty block. Exactly. And people like you know, thought at first that empty blocks were bad and evil. But the reality is, let's say that the average network transaction capacity is like, just say N, okay? So what's the difference between mining, you know, three blocks of size N in a row and one block of size 3N and then two uh, empty blocks? From my perspective, the answer is it's actually better to mine the 3N and then two empty blocks because what that means is that by the time you get to the third block, three times as many transactions have three confirmations, right? Oh, yeah. So it's, it's basically, it's, it's a wash, but there's actually a tiny advantage to mining a large block and then a couple of uh, empty blocks. And in the default mining part of Bitcoin Core, is this SPV thing switched in there or are the mining, did the mining pools have to write their own code to SPV mine to ignore a block until the, you know, the left hand has completely validated it? Yeah, that's an excellent question. You know, from an empirical standpoint, you know, from my research, I need to say I can't answer that question. But from my personal perspective, because, you know, my research simply looks at the blockchain, right? So it's meant to not open up the covers. But from sort of my other knowledge, I would say that I think that it was independently implemented by multiple miners. Right. It would it would have to be right, because the just the fact that there's a, a block with no transactions, like I don't think the regular Bitcoin core miner has that has an SPV mining mode. So that's something that has to have been. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, we're not looking at the core code. You know, the way that the uh, system works is because I did the I did the traffic shaping. So I'm somewhat familiar with the core code. It kind of, you know, downloads a message and then it doesn't really present the message to the rest of the network until the entire message has been downloaded. I mean, to the rest of the node. So, yeah, so, I mean, it could be but it could be easily added um, to the, uh, you know, peer to peer protocol, the ability to do this and also you know, the whole peer-to-peer protocol essentially needs to be updated to um, compete against the uh, what's called the Bitcoin Relay Network. Are you familiar with what that is? Yeah, if my understanding is that miners have their own network so that when a miner finds a block, uh, you know, if it's F2 pool, he sends it to slush pool right away, not on the Bitcoin network, but on a separate network just so the miners can keep up with each other. Right. So miners are able to react very quickly to new blocks. The problem is that um, this is obviously a centralized and very dangerous lever point. Say some entity comes in there and says, okay, you know, if um, a block 
has a particular transaction in it, we're not going to relay it on the um, Bitcoin relay network. You know, it, it allows you to to basically um, start doing a lot of bad things to affect the money function of Bitcoin. But the, the relay network is decentralized, right? It's not just all going through one server. Or am I wrong about that? No, there are several servers, but from an organizational perspective, it's very much centralized. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just one guy who, you know, has six servers. Oh, okay. I didn't realize. I thought it was like an additional sort of P2P. No, it's not. Not at all. And uh, so what, you know, we need to do, and I think this realization has hit the Bitcoin XT group. And also I think Jonathan Tuman is uh, excited about this and also... Um, you know, the Bitcoin Unlimited group is to basically reinvent the peer-to-peer protocol and update it to uh, handle a lot, uh, you know, it's just in a much more sophisticated way, kind of network engineering type way. Like, for example, one thing you want to do is as like an almost overlay network within the peer-to-peer network is have a what you'd call a fast relay network. And what that means is, say, every node can indicate to one other node that it should relay transactions and blocks right away without validation, without sending a inventory request. So if, it, if a node receives a block, it would look through its list of you know, fast propagation clients and just send the block directly to them as fast as it can. Interesting, sort of, sort of speed it up. Yeah, and so what you would actually do uh, in network engineering terms is create like a minimum spanning tree uh, from the source of the blocks through all of the uh, nodes that have a need for fast block you know, relay. And the advantage to doing it within the peer-to-peer network is again that a single, there's no single point of failure that can break this minimum spanning tree. If the tree breaks, then you reconnect and reform into another portion of the tree. So really quick, back to the research you did on the empty blocks. What was your conclusion from that data? Were you, did that research tell you like, oh, we can run three megabyte blocks and be fine? Or you know, what was, what was that data telling you? What that told me was that basically Bitcoin Unlimited and the idea of having an unlimited, non-centrally uh, decided block size is fundamentally sound because uh, blocks will be naturally limited by the capabilities of the network and the validation hardware inside the network. Okay, say that say that one more time for me. <laughs> okay. It told me that. So there is a, a, a very strong concern with Bitcoin Unlimited. You have unlimited blocks. So someone's going to produce a one gigabyte block and they're going to take down the whole Bitcoin network, right? So the answer is no. And that's what this research shows. Research shows that Bitcoin Unlimited in the idea that the block size can emerge from the properties of the network is sound, that we do not need a centralized authority figure to pick block sizes. We can actually discover them through the properties of the network. Okay, and that's because if a miner tries to attack my little Raspberry Pi, which I do have, by the way, if, if someone tries to like force a one gigabyte block down my throat, I can sort of ignore it and just SPV mine. Yes. So um, there's exactly. So you can ignore it in SPV mine. There's two um, dimensions to the paper. The first is to say that SPV mining can be used to reduce the size of the block. But the truth in the math works out, though, that if one gigabyte blocks were possible, then, you know, an entity with a lot of hash power 
could basically create arbitrarily large blocks to artificially drive the network's transaction uh, you know, validation capacity as high as it wanted, except for one feature, which is that nodes can choose to mine a sibling instead of mining on top of the one gigabyte block. So ultimately, if a one gigabyte block comes in, what nodes need to do is to say, sorry, I'm going to attempt to create a sibling and uh, orphan your one gigabyte block. And it actually makes a financial sense for miners to do so. And the reason why is because during all of the time that that miner is attempting to validate the one gigabyte block, he's unable to add his own blocks with transactions into the network, right? So he loses the transaction revenue. So if, it's, if it was going to take you a week to validate this one gigabyte block, you're not going to be able to issue transactions for a week. You're going to lose a lot of revenue. You can look at the paper and, you know, there's math behind all this and you end up with this curve and the curve basically says, the curve basically is, is fascinating because it says two things. One, it says today, anytime a transaction is added to a block, it actually makes it slightly more likely that that block will be orphaned. And that's interesting because it also resonates with Peter R's work on the fee market, which discovered the same thing. But the effect is not large at block sizes less than a couple of megabytes. The effect only gets to be very large at 10 or more megabytes. Basically, if it's going to take a node 10 minutes to validate your block, then they're, they're overwhelmingly likely to be able to discover a new block and validate it before they can validate your block. And in that case, it makes sense for them to do that. I see. So so what this is enabling is sort of competition between miners. If one miner says, I'm going to screw up the network by sending out a one gigabyte block, another miner says, instead of building on top of that, I'm going to send out a sibling block that will only take 10 seconds to verify. My block will get accepted. Yours will get orphaned. I win the block reward and the network keeps going and the, the one gigabyte block attacker loses. Exactly. So what we kind of showed in the paper is that even if rewards were up to three to five bitcoins per one megabyte of data, blocks couldn't really exceed more than about 30 megabytes because of this effect. And obviously, you know, those rewards are utterly ludicrous. Right now, the reward is like 0.1 to 0.4 bitcoins per megabyte. You mean uh, transaction fees, right? Not the subsidy yeah, yeah, no, in transaction fees. So the reality is that there's actually a pressure keeping block sizes small because at 0.1 to 0.4 bitcoins of transactions fees per megabyte, the curve just goes down. It, it doesn't make sense to include transactions in blocks, technically. But obviously, in the long term, you do need to add transactions to blocks, right? But from the short term perspective, Actually, from a very theoretical standpoint, you know, it makes sense to just mine zero transaction blocks. Okay, so that was great. It sounds like your your research is really cool, and it's showing that you're. And I know I've read uh, Peter R's paper about the fee market, and it, it seems like yes, we do not need a hard limit. Any of these hard limit proposals are right. That's what this research says. Does it puts basically Bitcoin Unlimited on a you know strong theoretical foundation? Right. So. Do bigger blocks cause centralization? How do you, you know, react to that? Yeah, and I would say the answer without one transaction blocks is yes. But because you can produce a block with the headers only, the answer is no. Oh, okay, I see. So if somebody says, I'm going to be the only miner in the entire network and I'm going to make gigabyte blocks every 10 minutes, 
they will simply get orphaned. Yes. And also, the reason why a bigger block might promote centralization is because it takes a long time to propagate that bigger block around the network, right? Causing more orphans. However, with the existence of headers only mining, you don't have to propagate the entire block on the network. You only propagate a constant size, very small chunk before all those other miners can attempt to uh, mine. So, so the SPV block is an essential component of making this sort of free market system work. Yeah, it's very important so that the small miner can compete against the large miner. Right. But at the same time, it's, you know, the small block obviously is a disadvantage for the user because their transactions aren't getting confirmed. So this sort of, to me, it seems like it's not as bad as replaced by fee, but it's another one of these things where like a miner could implement it. It's bad for the users, but maybe good for the network. No, I mean, that's an excellent point, which I do address in the conclusion of my paper, which is yes. And the small and the zero transaction miner is punished, right? Because he does get the Coinbase reward, but he doesn't get the transaction fees. So there is a pressure for these miners to not mine zero transaction blocks. And what I think is absolutely fascinating too, is that as the block reward halves, the pressure to actually not just be part of the Bitcoin network, but actually contribute to the money function, to the processing of transactions, the pressure to do that increases because the block subsidy is decreasing. So a miner has to gain more of his money via transactions. So we were talking earlier that Bitcoin Core doesn't naturally have an SPV mining switch. But since that's an important part of your economic model, is it included in Bitcoin Unlimited? You know, do you, you sort of want to encourage miners to orphan their peers if a block is too big? Yes. And um, it is not currently. That is more to do with the fact that Bitcoin Unlimited is a very new and young effort as opposed to a decision. I think at this point, it's most important just to tell miners, hey, if you produce a large block, we're going to accept it, as opposed to handling these really esoteric cases that will only really start taking into effect when blocks get to multi-megabyte. I mean, we don't even, realistically, we don't even have the transactions on the network to create this situation. Something that your viewers should understand, too, is all of this research is, is in this imaginary land where there's an infinite number of you know, fee paying transactions in the network. Whereas the reality is that we probably won't even get anywhere near these limits because there just aren't the transactions with fees available. Great. This is great stuff. So how has the community reacted specifically? Have you spoken to any miners? I know you've asked Gavin and Dr. Adam back for code review. What kind of feedback from, I'll say, the big players have you been getting about this idea? So two questions. How have we talked to miners? We have not talked to miners yet. As I said, the project's very new. In terms of the code feedback, you first need to understand that the code changes, as you might imagine, are very minimal. And for example, the wallet source code has not been touched at all, not a single line. So this is a very thin patch set at this point on top of core. In terms of looking at the code, you know, there, there's been no credible commentary on the code. There's been a couple of, like uh, Adam back came out and said, hey, he sort of did the CEO move, right? Hey, I want to open some discussion about this. And then there was a lot of FUD and misunderstanding and all the trolls came out. Uh, but then, you know, no one ever referenced a single actual line of code. 
And the client, I imagine, like in the GUI, there's just a unlimited menu where I, as a user, can type in those two parameters we were talking about. Yeah, you know, in order to be a patch set, we created a separate dialog box which you access through the options menu, and you can select, you know, the block generation size and the excessive block size and the accept depth. And then also you can select any traffic shaping parameters because as an added bonus, because I did the traffic shaping work for Bitcoin XT, um, I added traffic shaping to Bitcoin Unlimited. It continues with the philosophy that nodes should be able to do what they want, not what the network insists that they do. Gotcha. So those options seem essentially user-friendly, but how do I, as a user of Bitcoin Unlimited, how do I make that decision? You know, what, where do I, what do I think the excessive block size is? I don't know. I, I got, I got Comcast internet. I don't know what my size is or what my processors can handle. I'm not an expert like that. You know, how do you recommend that users pick those numbers? Yeah. If I was a user and I didn't really know these items, I would do what I actually did for the traffic shaping, which is that I'd be on Skype or I'd be watching my, um, my Netflix. And if I got some kind of hiccup, I would have to go and shut down Bitcoin core. Right. So can reduce the amount of traffic you're willing to devote to. Um, got, okay, I, I got it, I got it. So so Bitcoin Unlimited node operators, like all full node operators, I mean, like I have a full node, I check in on it every day, it shuts down, I restart it. You know, I got, I got a feel for if my system resources are being used up. Exactly. So I would just look at like the CPU utilization and if it seems to be high, then, you know, you can say, okay, I want to indicate to the network that I would like smaller blocks. So you, you lower your excessive block limit size, right? But... The, the point is that because your vote is, first of all, a soft vote, and also it's just one of many, many votes, it doesn't have to be, you know, on the nose accurate. Right, right, because it's, it's unlimited. Cool. So in the last couple of minutes here, I just I wanted to talk about your Articles of Federation, which is, a, you know, a non-technical document that includes stuff about how developers are sort of chosen and you've, you're addressing the, the human community side of this, the political side, the governance side, which I think is like the governance question is basically the same question as a block size debate right now. So why don't you talk about why you wrote the Articles of Federation and how that fits in with this whole story here? Sure. Yeah. And actually, it's interesting. I actually wrote these before writing a line of code because I wanted, I thought they were more important than the code. The idea that, oh, we're all just a bunch of uh, engineers and we just throw code together, it's a lie, right? Whenever you have multiple people working on a single endeavor, you do need some form of organization. And whether that organization just arises by chance or whether you know it's explicit is uh, sort of your decision. I think at Bitcoin Core, we have some uh, you know, very technically astute engineers who are now in a position of governance, essentially by chance. And unfortunately, um, and I, I think this is well known, I don't have direct experience with it, other than reading the results of other people getting you know, slammed. But unfortunately, the aura or the culture in Bitcoin Core is very exclusive. And if you ask an idea that maybe wasn't so carefully thought out, you just get, you know, creamed, right? As opposed to a nice person saying, oh, why don't you like uh, investigate that a little bit more and think about these aspects and then off you go, right? Yeah, it's brutal out there. Yeah, it's brutal. And it doesn't need to be brutal. In fact, running a a successful open source project, if you read some of the literature, one of the key things that they say is key developers 
one of their goals needs to be to move the incidental contributor to an active contributor. So it's not just, you know, are you an expert at cryptography? It's can you actually engage in the community and inspire other engineers to be part of your project? And I think that that is absolutely what's not happening in Bitcoin Core. In fact, what you have to do there is you have to, it's more like a boxing ring and you have to fight your way to earning your stripes. So what I tried to do here is to create, and by the way, uh, if you're not an engineer, then go away, right, in Bitcoin Core. So um, I tried to create a, a structure in the Articles of Federation that more reflected how Bitcoin Unlimited emerged, which is ideas from lots of different people, from lots of different backgrounds, right? You know, these are very, very intelligent people who just don't happen to have a degree in computer science, right? But they're fully capable of understanding concepts. And so I wanted to include uh, a lot of people from other disciplines. And also I wanted to make an explicit governance system so that a single or cabal of engineers could not essentially hijack the project. I see. Uh, this is a really good idea. You're, you're, in, in addition to the code you've written, you're, you're also trying to bring the love back. Yeah, the love and also, you know, ideas from other disciplines. And also, I want to deny the idea of a benevolent dictator or what's happening, you know, in core is a non-benevolent dictator, right? We lost our benevolent dictator, right? Satoshi is gone. And so the idea that we could just create another one seems to be pretty false, especially given how much money is involved in Bitcoin, right? So how much money is involved and also how little, Right. There's very little money to work on the core. There's a huge amount of money and tons of startups everywhere. Right. So people want to push their own agenda to make their own startup uh, wildly, you know, successful and be, you know, get one percent of the world's transactions. So that's the intention here. And if you read the actual operations of it, there's a lot of checks and balances. For example, nobody can halt the submission of a improvement proposal. People like the developer can slow it down and they can make suggestions, but ultimately the proposer can force such a thing to go to vote. And the opposite is true too. If a, which is sort of what happened with BIP 100, at least that's what the big block people expect. It was kind of like a straw man thrown out there to create divisiveness in the large block community. So the opposite is also true, is if a proposer seems to be not pursuing his uh, proposal, the developer or another officer can force that proposal to come to a vote and therefore be, you know, explicitly voted down. And I feel like that actually is tremendously missing from uh, the BIP process and the core process. And, uh, you know, honestly, if um, we had had an explicit vote on the block size and the one megabyters had been shown to be a clear majority and they won, then, you know, Bitcoin Unlimited wouldn't exist. I would be working on an altcoin called Microcoin right now. Because all I want and all we want is for, you know, our voice to be heard. And if it turns out to be the minority view, then fine. So the, the dark side of this is like, so let me ask you, like, how many um, contributors have pull access on your GitHub, you know? Yeah. So uh, the reality right now is we haven't actually held elections yet. So I am the only, um, I am right now the benevolent dictator of Bitcoin Unlimited. And in about one week, we will hold elections. And then the actual explicit, uh, you know, these, the situation will occur. But one thing that you do need to understand is that to stop uh, someone hijacking uh, the GitHub repository, 
basically, I think it's the secretary actually holds the GitHub repository administrative access, and he gives the developer the rights uh, to write to the repository. So a, a person who has no uh, coding ability basically controls access to who is, uh, you know, who can make changes to the code base. Uh, that's a really interesting concept. Yeah, I like that. Right. And, and then also um, checks and balances type way, the uh, developer actually holds the uh, DNS registration, right? So if the secretary who kind of does the website uh, starts going crazy and, you know, um, turns the uh, Bitcoin Unlimited website into something else, then the developer can actually point BitcoinUnlimited.info to a different website entirely. So they're kind of holding, you know, they kind of have guns against each other, right? To make sure that no one abuses uh, their, their power. Cool. So as we wrap up, I guess my last question is, do you think we will see a block bigger than one megabyte in 2016? <laughs> um, I do not know. This is what I think. I think that if all of the large block advocates come together, then we will. And I do not think they will come together. So I if I could say one thing to all the large block advocates, to uh, you know, Coinbase, to BitPay, is follow your algorithm, but make it lenient and accept other people's algorithms. And if that happens, if BitPay changes its median to say, okay, this is the median we're going to generate, but we will accept BIP 101 blocks. And if BIP 101 says, okay, you know, this is what we're going to generate, but we will accept blocks that become larger than BIP 101 if, you know, BitPay's median uh, just goes sky high, then I believe we will see blocks greater than uh, one megabyte this year. Cool. And, and, it's, and uh, it's also worth mentioning that Bitcoin Unlimited is compatible with a block size increase from XT or BitPay, any of these, right? If, if BIP 101 takes over, yes, Bitcoin Unlimited is cool and just go ahead and accept it. Yeah. Yes. So we're sort of the solution that allows any of these. And I'm sort of asking other people to consider that, consider this leniency. And even if you don't want to go to Bitcoin Unlimited for a variety of reasons, add this this key idea, which is to be lenient about the block size that you accept, because it's not an essential money function into your own client. This is great. Well, why don't you give out your website? And if, you, if you're looking for developers, you know, how do we get in touch like that? Sure. It's uh, www.bitcoinunlimited.info. And also, if you go, because of the uh, censorship in the other forums, um, we've moved over to another forum, which is actually gaining a lot of traction and excitement. It's located at um, bitco.in slash forum. And that's where most of the communication on Bitcoin Unlimited actually occurs. Okay, great. Andrew Stone, thank you so much for your time and good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was created by Matthew and Andrew. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin and featured music by Jared Rubens and mindtomatter.org. If you have any questions or comments, email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.